Welcome to the Hey Legal Quiz with me, Edith Forrest. The aim of this quiz is to provide some light-hearted entertainment during lockdown and beyond. I'll be asking 20 questions of leading Scottish legal figures, questions which give insight to their careers and their lives beyond the law. So let's begin. This free Hey Legal podcast is brought to you with the support of Caseload from De Novo Business Intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by Workflow Solutions, specialists in records and document management, scanning and digitization, managed print, cloud and IT solutions. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for agreeing to take the Hey Legal quiz. Um, so I've got the 20 questions here that we will just kick off with now. Um, so the first question is, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? It's a really, really hard question for me because I'm normally, I was telling people that I was going to be a lawyer when I was in primary six and primary seven, so I've never really even contemplated doing anything else, so honestly, I don't have any uh, answer to that. I I can't imagine doing anything different. (laughs) Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, Question number two then. Did you have a nickname at school? And if so, what was it and why were you given it? Uh, I never really had a nickname at school, but uh, by the late 70s, I was telling people that I was going to go to university and do law. And at that time, there was a programme on the television called Petricelli. So uh, all the boys in the housing estate in which I stayed started calling me Petra Cherry so uh, and I've never seen it I've apparently had a caravan in his driveway or something but I've never actually managed to catch an episode and I still see some of them and they still call me Petra Cherry so uh, but nobody else it's just the people that stayed uh, nearby <laughs> okay oh dear so where, question number three at school were you a swatty type eh uh, no, a stereotypically swatty type, but in our school, really, they had two classes where they pressed the people hard and expected them to possibly obtain all levels and hires and stuff, and everybody else was really just abandoned. So on the basis I was in the top two classes, uh, I suppose some people would have seen me as a but yeah, swatty type. Certainly compared to the boys I ran about with, I was a swatty type. But uh, I don't know, I still played football and did all the other stuff that other people did. So I was able to sort of bridge the two communities, I think, quite well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like it. Yeah. All right. What Question four, what was your first job? I've never really had any jobs other than this, but I worked as a postman. Right during the Christmas holidays from university a couple of times. And uh, I was the oldest paper boy in Glasgow because <laughs> I had a pretty lucrative Sunday paper run uh, in Tarside Oval in Cardonald with high flats. And it was quite easy because basically we're up at the top of the high flats and I left and then you come down. So I kept it going until I left university. <laughs> so uh, I was still doing the paper run when I was in my early 20s. Really? But, uh, that's it. I've never, other than that, I've never done any other uh, job. Postman, paperboy and lawyer, that's it. That's all I've ever done. It's quite a CV. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, question number five. How do you define success? That's a really difficult one. I suppose it's uh, partly you would... I suppose you're successful with people 
respect you as somebody who can do the job that you're trying to do. So that's part of it. There's a sort of professional aspect to it. And the other part, I suppose, uh, is sort of providing for people who are dependent on you. So I think probably if, you, you know, the, the kids are unconcerned about the possibility of some sort of financial uh, downturn because you're able to help them and I think that's probably success if they can depend on you to help them out when they need it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, okay, question number six, your favourite drink? Uh, that's, a, that's a difficult one. I, I probably, before the lockdown, I would probably have said lager because... I go to the pub on a Saturday and meet my pals and I usually have a couple of pints of lager, but I've realised over the last eight weeks I don't even miss lager at all. Really? So I really go for the company. Uh-huh. So during the lockdown I've been drinking sort of New World Chardonnay okay. on a Saturday and a Sunday, I like that. I have the odd gin. When I'm in Ireland I only ever drink Guinness uh-huh. and when I'm in England I only ever drink real ale. <laughs> so, quite a widespread, but at the moment I'd say probably, uh, probably white wine. All right, okay. Question number seven: What don't you like about your job? I, I like pretty much everything, but I don't really like looking back. You know, I, I, I'm always trying to look forward. So I hate reading charges. You know, if I've been if I if I've been involved in a trial and ground. I, Grounds of appeal have been drafted. I, I don't think you do appeals very much, but some people will come back to me and say, these are the grounds of appeal we're proposing. Could you see if you would suggest anything else? And if the trial's already been and gone <laughs> and the accused has been convicted, it's torture having to sit and read, you know, yeah. a 60-page charge for a case that uh, has, has gone and it's a bit depressing as well if you lost it so I would say that that's, a real, that's the thing that always gets left to the last possible minute you know I had absolutely no problem sitting down and reading papers all week long but if I'm asked to sit and read a charge for something that's uh, happened a few months previous that's always going to be left to the absolute last moment before I get around to doing it so it might probably that Okay, pretty depressing, I suppose, as you say. (laughs) (laughs) All right, um, question number eight. Which was your most memorable case to date? I think probably the Enver Kip case, just because of the way it was publicised, you know. I mean, uh, if it hadn't been for the publicity, I would probably have forgotten most things about it by now, but... It's the one thing that people want to talk to you about. And, uh, I mean, even even yesterday, I had to go to the vet and I met one of the neighbours and she was saying, I was watching that documentary and it was incredible that you and Betty were on it. And I was thinking, what a coincidence that you and Betty, what's she talking about? And it turns out that one of the witnesses in the case says, has stayed about 100 metres from my front door for the whole time I've been here, which is, you know, coming on 20 years. So uh, it's because people see it in the television, it, it's a kind of point of 
common interest. So yeah. it's become different from all the other cases just because complete strangers or neighbours or people who don't ever really talk to you about work will ask about Eddie Kearney and Avro and what do you think and you know so probably that it's, it, it's the only time I'm ever likely to be asked by the BBC to go into a press conference you know <laughs> so, I, I can't really see that being repeated to be honest or, and um, it, it was it, it was also memorable because they managed to arrange it for the Friday afternoon before Christmas so there wasn't much work done after it. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it looked like a really interesting case, anyway. And I suppose uh, I think you've done a you've done a podcast with Ali, have you? Or you're proposing uh, one about it? Yeah. I I mean, it, he asked me what was so unusual about it, and I think in a regular case, you'll identify a couple of witnesses and say, right, you know, this is going to make or break, you know, this witness is really important because she's an eyewitness or this witness is speaking to a confession or something. And quite a lot of the trial is kind of uncontested stuff that you don't get involved in, but this was just, there were so many different types of evidence. They had chemicals in the soil, they had bones, they had human remain detector dogs, you know, and all stuff that you didn't really know anything about, but you had to go away and get the information and read it. And, you know, some days you'd be sitting preparing it first thing in the morning and there would be three different experts all speaking about three different things, you know. Yeah. It, was, it, was, uh, it was really, really hard going and, and, and uh, Eddie Kearney presented his own challenges as well. So it was, uh, it was a hard, hard shift. And I'm sure there have been other... Uh, Cases which have just been as hard, but uh, that one kind of stands out, as I say, just because people ask you about it all the time. Yeah, and and what did you think about the way you were depicted on how you came across on the on the show? Uh, and it's funny, the first episode I was quite happy with, and the second, I, I thought uh, I'd put an awful lot of work into the speech and. And it's entirely understandable, but, you know, if, if you've got a speech that lasts an hour and 15 minutes and, and they're only showing a minute of it or two minutes or something like that, it's, it's quite hard to understand what the hell you're going on about, you know? So <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I feel. I, to be honest, I don't know how I feel about it. I'd, uh, it was inevitable they were only going to be able to show tiny bits of it. And I think if that's all you saw it would be hard to understand what we were trying to do, you know. And uh, so, but I don't think that can be avoided, you know. Mm. I mean, sure that it's 60 minutes of court footage and uh, and obviously they want to show the witnesses, you know, they don't. So uh, uh, at the end of it, I suppose, I felt it would be difficult for somebody watching it really to understand how much we had put into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of selected the interesting witnesses. Uh, and, I mean, the, for example, the, the firemen, they spent quite a lot of time on the firemen. Ultimately, Lord Matthews directed the jury to ignore the firemen, you know. But he was a fantastic witness from a, a documentary point of view and an entertainment point of view, you know. And, uh, but ultimately... Ian McSporn said to the jury, I'm not depending on his evidence at all. And then it was repeated by the judge. And I mean, part of the reason 
I suppose nobody depended on it was because of the cross-examination and Ian Duggan and I were cross-examining them all afternoon but you know they showed about 15 seconds across, or 30 seconds across examination or something so yeah. it was strange but I'm, I'm, I'm not angry about it or anything I just thought it would be hard really to appreciate how much you put into it just from watching what they showed on the documentary you know yeah. but yeah, uh, I knew that. I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, what you're worried about is doing something mad, you know, because you're always capable of doing that. And uh, and uh, so what I was thinking, it would be a real nightmare if I did something crazy and it showed in the telly and that's all you ever remembered for. So I, I, I'll take it, basically. You know, probably, if I was editing it, probably it would have been different, but, but I'm... I'm happy with it because I managed to avoid any disasters. Yeah, no, I think you came out very well. Unscathed. <laughs> um, all right, so number nine is tell me tell me one thing that would surprise me about you. I, I'm really struggling with that one. You know, I think I'm, when I got this list of questions, I realised how dull that, you know, I'm really that, and <laughs> how dull I've become. And uh, I'm really pretty much focused on kind of working hard all week and relaxing the weekend. But there's nothing I would say that really was uh, that surprising. Um, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I, the only thing that immediately came to mind was that I'm a big fan of American football, you know, which isn't that uh, popular in Scotland. And I've been down to London to watch uh, the American football at Wembley. And nobody I know understands that. Everybody watches it and thinks, don't know what's going on with that. Yeah. How can you possibly watch it? So I suppose that, uh, certainly in my group of pals, it's unusual even to watch 10 minutes of it, never mind oh. watch it every weekend, you know, so... That's probably a wee bit unusual. All right. Maybe surprising. But I, I can't think of it more shocking. I was and it's not shocking, but I was quite I was surprised when you told me you were a vegan. Aye, aye. Well, the problem with being a vegan is everybody hates vegans and uh, they particularly <laughs> hate vegans who go on all the time about being vegans. <laughs> so I've got a kind of rule about no mentioning it. But oh. uh, I, 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 I went, I've been a vegetarian since... It's 2013, and I decided on my last birthday, which was October, uh, to go 100%. So it's, it's sort of, I'll never go back to it. It's been a lot easier than I thought. So uh, I don't think it's that difficult. And uh, I think it, it, when you go, and if you, the minute you tell anybody, if you're out at something, People are kind of fascinated and say, well, what do you eat? You know, what do you eat instead of bacon? And, you know, and once you've had that conversation five times, you don't really want to have it again. So uh, I, I tend to keep that kind of quiet. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's okay. It can't, it obviously, it has to come up anyway, because wherever you go, you're uh, asking for bacon stuff and then everybody gets involved in the conversation. But... Uh, I don't think it's that big a deal, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Um, number 10 is what traits in others irritate you the most? I'm fascinated by the way that some lawyers behave on social media, to be honest. You know, I think uh, 
and I, and I think it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. So, I, people who are sort of—I I think you judge people by the way they behave to folk who would, are in a different position to them. So, the people who are horrible. And there's a very, very few, but the people in our job who are not nice to the clerks of court or the masers or the faculty staff uh, treat them like, you know, servants, that is something in the job which irritates me. don't see much evidence of it, but you do see it occasionally. But I'm really fascinated by the lawyers who are prepared to swear at folk on social media and and you know, just show so much of their sort of personal life uh, and share it with people who are not really that interested. And, and it fascinates me, the idea that it's probably going to get worse because, you know, the younger people are much more uh, prone to it. And I, mean, I, I, I keep in touch with a lot of the developments in England and, you know, they, they've had a lot of problems with people getting involved in arguments on social media and giving people personal abuse on Facebook and Twitter and all that. And I suppose it's going to come our way. So I would urge everybody just to be a bit kind of nicer, you know. It's yeah. uh, it's horrible to see it. It's horrible to see it with anybody, but, you know, sometimes I think, this guy's a solicitor, you know. How can he possibly carry on with that? And there seems to be a tolerance of it up here that maybe they've gone too far the other way down in England, but... Uh, uh, that's that's something that irritates me when I see legal professionals behaving like idiots on social media, you know. Yeah. And I suppose one, one tip I think is given to all new lawyers, which is be nice to the clerks in court, you know, that's the key to a smooth path through your legal career. And that obviously translates to social media. So it's, there seems to have been a bit of a misfire somewhere along that communication line. And, you know, you don't even need to be horrible to them to upset them a bit. I mean, I see, I do trials in the last three weeks and some of the council never speak to the court, really, you know, or, you know, if the Crown is counter-assisted by somebody, never speak to the the Crown Junior or the Noter or something like that, you know, and I don't know why that is, but it, uh, they feel that, you know, they, they mm-hmm. feel I hear it, they say, you know, I was in a trial for four weeks for him, he never spoke to me once, you know, but it's, uh, there's a lack of awareness, I suppose, or I suppose some people are just trying to underline their authority, you know, that I'm really important and, you know, therefore I will be seen as less important if I'm chatting to the Crown noter, you know, I don't understand it. I hate to, I hate to see it, but to be honest, you don't really... When you see it, it's generally ignorance rather than outright hostility, but any sort of bad manners to people who are really just there to help you, you know, I don't I don't like to see that. No, maybe it comes down to pride as well, which is a dreadful to have. All right. Um, okay, an easy question, I hope, this time, or maybe not, given your, your veganism, but, but yeah. again, there I'm being... Prejudiced against vegan, sorry Tommy. Um, Favourite flavour of crisps? Well, I've got my wee daughter Rachel, I thank for this, because she is somewhere between a vegetarian and a vegan, and 
uh, she makes it her mission to find out pleasurable things that vegans can eat. So all the time she's texting me saying, I just said walkers, bacon crisps, and vegans can eat them. And But at the moment I've got, there's a vegan supermarket at St George's Cross in Glasgow and I've signed up and they send me a box every month. And in the last box there was vegan haggis right. and salt crisps. So uh, I've been eating them a lot recently. Too much. <laughs> I'm going to have to give up on them or I'll not get into my waistcoat when I go back to work. <laughs> vegan haggis crisps, that's my right. Sounds interesting. Okay, number 12 is do you have any irrational fears? I like this one. I'm absolutely terrified of a, I've forgotten the level crossings. Okay. You know, where, there's not many of them now, but you know where the road crosses the railway line. Yeah. And uh, I remember going to Cotton Vale and I was early, as usual, far too early. And I went, I was going to drive to Bridge of Allen. Mm-hmm. And to drive from Cotton Vale to Bridge of Allen, you need to cross a railway line. And when I realised that, I did a three-point turn and come back because I wouldn't cross it. I must have seen a documentary about crashes or something when I was <laughs> a kid. And I'm, up, I'm absolutely terrified of crossing a railway line in a car because I just assume yeah. that uh, you're going to be absolutely wiped out. Yeah. But other than that, I don't think I've got any, uh, any irrational fears now. That, that sounds bad enough. But I get it. I understand that. Cause it, uh, you know, I don't suppose, but I, I don't know if everybody thinks about it, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like them. But I think they've been phased out because so many people have been killed on them. Yeah. So. so your fear might not well be too irrational after all. I think it might be <laughs> pretty dangerous. Uh, yeah. um, number 13, oldest pair of shoes. Well, I buy a lot of shoes, to be honest, and uh, I've got quite a good recycling mechanism where I, I give a lot of stuff to a charity shop and govern. So as soon as I buy new stuff, I give all my own stuff away. So uh, I've not really got any old oh. shoes. I imagine the oldest pair I've got is probably about three or four years or something. Right. So. That's a charity you've been involved with for a while, isn't it? Aye, aye. It's actually... Uh, they're only about 50 metres from the office that I ran when I was a sister, you know, and uh, they, they've got a deal with the home office. And the thing I like about them is that they don't sell the clothes to raise money to contribute to anything. They actually put the clothes on people's backs. So the people go to, they arrive from Libya or Syria and they go to the home office and the home office send them there. Right. So, you know, they're getting complete families turned up, you know, who have been sweltering in the heat of North Africa and two days later they're in a flat and govern and they don't have anything, you know, yeah. so the people can go and leave with uh, complete outfits for their kids and, you know, so it's, it's I, I like it just because it's so direct, you know, you can imagine that, uh, that you know, stuff that you've just got lying about is actually going to be of practical use to people. And the other thing is they get tons and tons of baby stuff and they get quite a lot of female clothing as well, but uh, they all, they're always struggling with males uh, clothing. So you know it's going to be, uh, you know it's going to be used straight away. Yeah. So no old shoes, 
No. What's the name of your charity, uh, Tommy? Just Maz was Maz was M A S L O W S. Don't know why they call themselves that. They, they do it. It's a shame because they, they only open till half past four, and I've always got a problem getting there because if I'm in court until four, there's, there's no way I can make it, and they they don't open at the weekend. But usually, you get the ch- you know just drive a bit of stuff in the car and then go the first chance I get. Yeah. No. I see you supporting that a lot, so that's that's great. Um, question number fourteen: Who had the biggest influence on your career in the law? I would probably say my father. Uh, he was involved in a bit of a barney with the police when I was just about six or seven, and uh, ended up with a few broken ribs. Mm-hmm. And went to the sheriff court, and uh, I mean he was probably given as good as he, he got. It, don't get me wrong, he was ex in the Royal Navy, and he liked a baby and all that. And uh, he was trying to, he was going to a house which he didn't want to admit him for reasons I'm not going to. So the police turned up to basically move him away, and there was a fight, and he ended up getting a real kicking from the police, and then he was prosecuted. So. Uh, that must have, I was only seven at the time, and I know that because he went to, by coincidence, he went to the Sheriff Court the day the Queen Mother opened the Kingston Bridge. Uh, and so that was 1970, so I know I would only have been wee, and he never really got over it. He went on and on and on and on. Any time you, you know, any time he had a drink, he would go on about this, about how he'd been battered and he'd gone to court and nothing had happened to the police and all that. So I think that probably put the idea in my head. By, you know, a, a bit of coincidence, my sister was also engaged to a guy who uh, was sentenced in the high court. And it was just a bit of, kind of young boy, by a tearaway. And, a, uh, and uh, he, for a while, was a bit of a kind of big brother because I had two sisters. And he was always at the house and a bit of kind of jack of just to take me out and play football with me and all that kind of stuff. And he was always on, you should be a lawyer, you know, you should be a lawyer. He would have been about when I was uh, 9, 10, 11, you know. So mm-hmm. I guess he probably had a bit of a strange kind of role model to have, but uh, he was, I think because I never had any brothers, you know, yeah. he, he, was, he was a bit of a kind of big brother and then he get any big trouble in a way and that was an end of it all but those uh, those two things were going on at the time and like Claire Mitchell she always goes on about Crown Court and uh, I used to watch Crown Court and one of the one of the big thrills when I was the president of the Glasgow Bar Association I got a phone call one day and it was a guy who was a producer and I get talking to him. I can't remember what he's going to do. He's going to do some TV-related legal program, and he wanted me to help him with it. And when I got talking to him, it turned out he had produced Crown Court. Wow! So I was really excited about that. So, yeah. uh, so I used to we used to watch that, and uh, and that was probably an influence as well. And I, I never had anybody in the family who was a lawyer or anything like that. You know, they were on the another side. <laughs> So, uh, I suppose that must be 
must be my answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I've, I've, I've got two sisters. One's 14 years older than me, so I've never had much to do. I've really been, uh, but the other one was a big, big help. She's only seven years, and she's really hard, hard uh, character, you know, really... That sounds terrible, but she was, you know, she was on my case, you know, she would, uh, what did she would, she would always want to know, what, I always want to know what my marks were, and yeah. uh, if I was second, she'd ask, you know, what you, why are you second, you know, you should be first, you, you know, she always really, was always pushing me all the time, and uh, obviously at the time I thought she could be a bit of a pain in the neck, you know, but she was doing it for all the right reasons, and but a funny coincidence, she, she was always on at me, there was one girl in my class, who used to always beat me. So I was always second at everything. And and uh, one time I was first, I was joined first with her, I couldn't even beat her anything. <laughs> and uh, my sister used to say, what's the name of that lassie? And used to, you know, see if I ever see her, you know, she'd how can she not just let me beat her once and all that? She'd always been on about this girl. And she ended up her manager in the benefits agency. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, we get talking and she said, and she mentioned her name and she said, you know, and turned out this was the girl who beat me every uh, every year to the class prizes, you know. Oh so, my goodness. Oh. But she was saying, uh, and the girl, it's not only my sister, but the girl who beat me because she kept me. She kept me at it, you know, because I was determined that even once in the course of the, my school career I was going to be her. Yeah. Never managed it. Mm. And I don't know what she did. I presume she went to university, but she ended up working in the benefits agency with my sister, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, question 15 is, uh, what is your favourite chocolate bar? Well, again, uh, I'm all this to Rachel because Rachel claims, and I haven't done any research into it because I'm quite happy with the situation that fries chocolate cream is vegan right and I've checked the ingredients and I haven't seen anything to contradict it so I'm sticking with that I find it incredible that fries <laughs> chocolate cream and it's various flavours lime and orange and they do raspberry now right uh, but until somebody sends me a certificate saying that there's animal products in it I'm going to keep eating it quite right I hope nobody bursts that bubble if you see this. <laughs> um, number 16, Tommy, what is the fanciest event you've ever been to? That's a real tough one, you know, because I can't think of any fancy event that I've ever been to, you know. So, <laughs> uh, Not even a faculty I, dinner. I suppose uh, the opening of the legal year when they introduced the QCs and, mm -hmm. you know, I suppose that must be it. I've never been to the... I'm dying to go to the garden party, you know? Right. I've never been invited. Every year and people... You see people on social media saying they've been invited to Hollywood and I always think, hey, man, I'm getting invited, you know? So uh, I'm open for that. Uh, the fanciest thing I've ever done, and I'm going to give Gail Gianni a uh, mention for this because it was our wedding anniversary uh, uh, a couple of years ago and we were going to Rome and I just put the whole thing in the hands of Gail Gianni and said well she knows because I'll mess it up if I try and book something I'll mess it up so I gave it to Gail and she booked a hotel uh, with Michelin stars which overlooks the Vatican right 
and uh, and it was I can tell you the cheapest bottle of wine was a hundred euros so uh, <laughs> and that was the one I bought and I wasn't leaving <laughs> I was I was not leaving until I consumed every drop of it so uh, that's the fanciest uh, place and I'm also while I'm on a roll I'm also going to thank Mark Moyer because five years before that I did the same thing when we were in New York and Mark put me on to the River Cafe mm. which is a barge on the Brooklyn side of uh, the river which looks back so you basically you're sitting on a barge looking back at the Manhattan skyline and that wasn't quite as expensive as Rome but uh, <laughs> so those are the two fanciest places but to be honest we don't go anywhere fancy because because I'm a vegan my wife's a carnivore so we tend the only place we can really go is Italian places you know right. if we go out we tend to go to Italian places which are not on the whole in Scotland anyway uh, ultra fancy they are in Rome but uh, not, not so much in uh, southwest Glasgow. <laughs> Very good. Um, all right. Number 17, Tommy, is what quirks do you have? I th- think I'm just mad, really. You know, I'm kind of, <laughs> I've definitely got OCD or something, you know, and uh, it gets worse the older you get, you know. So everybody in my family think I'm completely bonkers. Uh, and absolutely useless at anything other than possibly my work. They might give me a pass on that, but um, I am, I'm, you know, if I inherit, not that it happens that often, but if somebody gives me papers to cover a preliminary hearing or something, it drives me mental if they're not in order, you know. I've got to have everything, you know, I think, how can people work with this? So the older, definitely the older you get. So I would say that I'm, I'm absolute fanatic for having things in an order where I can find them and all that kind of stuff, you know. And I, I suspect I've, I've always, uh, I've always been a bit like that, you know. I think okay. a lot of time. So I'd say that I'm, you know, I, I, I'm kind of ultra, not tidy, but ultra. I want to. I, I, I don't like not being able to find things or. If I've got papers, I need. I've got a certain way. If somebody get whatever set of papers you give me, I do it exactly the same, and I've been doing it exactly the same way for twenty years. You know, and I don't think I'll. So I know exactly where everything is, and uh, imagine I'm not an easy person to work with. You know, I think uh, I don't affect anybody else, but I, I think uh, I. I it's definitely a, a, I think a lot of lawyers have got it though I think a lot of people it was attractive to people who are like this because there's a kind of order to it you know mm. you know what you're doing and there are rules and I think it's attractive to people like me I'm, I'm not creative enough to go and do something else you know but I like the fact that with law you can just read all the cases and read all the law and read all the papers and then you know you can you can do that in every case. You're pretty much good to go. You you know you only really need to be creative in cross examination and the speech. You know, and uh, the rest of it, I suppose, becomes about routine once you've been doing it for a few years, which is perfect for somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, and I suppose this leads maybe well into the next question, which is 18. Which job would you, would you be terrible at? Every job, I'd be <laughs> terrible at every job. Anything that involves my hands, you know, <laughs> painting or joinery or plumbing or anything like that, I'm uh, absolutely useless at it. And uh, I heard in the radio the other week, and the guy, they were phoning in their DIY nightmares, and a, guy, a woman phoned in and said that her husband was not able to come and meet the mother-in-law the first time she came round because he had super glued himself to the kitchen worktop. And uh, so I was telling Alison this and she said, that, that's exactly the kind of thing you would do, you know. <laughs> it's a surprise that you, he beat you to it. But I've done uh, pretty much everything else, you know, and... Uh, I bought it. I was I was doing up this room. I'm in actually. It's a conservatory. You won't see it from the background, but and I just wrapped everything down. And I then bought a drill, and I was trying to act like a kind of real man that does kind of manly stuff about this. And I was telling my brother-in-law, and he said what? And I said I bought a drill, and he goes, ah, "You don't need a drill." He said, "See, the only tool you need." And he handed me his phone. And he said, that's the only tool you need. Just phone somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> oh, dear. What a shame. And have you had a number of mishaps over the years, Tommy? Trying oh, I, to- I, I, absolutely. But I'm oh, not even doing anything that fancy, you know, but like <laughs> falling off of things and, you know, <laughs> smashing windows and falling in the bath and, you know, just all that kind of Frank Spencer stuff. But I'm Frank trying to do, I'm trying to do something creative. So, uh, I would not be an asset if uh, I was doing any kind of manual labour, you know. Stick to the law. Stick to the law. All right. Um, Question number 19. What is the weirdest talent you have? I don't have any talents. I can answer that one quite simply, (laughs) you know. I've got absolutely nothing. It was quite depressing when I was reading this list and I I realised that if I wasn't able to do this, I'd, I'd just need to go and work in a pub or something, you know. I'm quite good at quizzes. I'm not bad at quizzes. I'm quite good at Popmaster and Radio 2. And and there was a a game called Mastermind, which was out in the kind of 70s and 80s, and it was a codes-breaking game. So it was like, you know, I suppose what they were doing in the war where they were trying to break codes and I was absolutely brilliant at it and uh, unfortunately nobody knows anything about it. I used to go, my older sister stayed in London and me and my other sister used to get the train down uh, to see her in the summer and we used to play Mastermind on the train mm-hmm. and uh, other than that I can't think of anything that I was better at than anybody else, you know, uh, Pretty average at everything else, sadly. <laughs> You've been coy, Tommy. You know, you, you do a bit of DJ. <laughs> I do. I, 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 I never... Uh, I, I'm glad you reminded me of that. Uh, I've actually... The most... When, to go back to the previous question, which would surprise people, I suppose that would surprise people. And there's a guy called Colin McLeod who released an album a few years ago not my type of music at all, kind of folky stuff, but it was it was nominated by NME or, you know, it was nominated for some music award. And he's very powerful, one of my pals. And he had his 50th party a couple of years ago and he had 250 people at the party. 
and I was DJing at the party and Colin McLeod sang at the party on the Saturday and on the Wednesday he was appearing, I think, at the Albert Hall, but certainly at one of the big venues in London supporting Cheryl Crow. Wow. So uh, it was an absolute liberty because he, he, he was going somewhere and he, he, for, he knows he goes drinking with him in Lewis and by sheer coincidence the poor guy Colin McLeod happened to be playing in Glasgow <laughs> round about the time of the party so he didn't he, know where he go he had to come <laughs> and nobody and the 250 people were there me and the guy who was running the party were the only two people who even knew who he was <laughs> and the poor guy, he's used to playing in front of, you know, 2,000 people. He's standing, this guy's got a farm in Renfrewshire, built a stage, it's a cracking venue. But he's standing in this uh, two-foot stage, playing songs that were nominated for a Mercury Award. And I'm just standing tall with a glass of Prosecco in their hand, you know, it was a liberty. And then they try to put me on at 8 o'clock. <laughs> to get the place lined up. I said, I'm not going to at 8 o'clock. Everybody's still sober, you know. So it wasn't the event that I was hoping for. And he booked three bands. And uh, so I was really hoping to go in about 11 o'clock uh, when everybody was drunk and get the place going with a bit of earth, wind and fire. But uh, it never worked out like that. He put me on about nine when everybody was still a bit too drunk to get, uh, too sober to get going. So... So I can say that I played on the same bill as Colin uh, McLeod, who supported Cheryl Crow, yeah. and uh, I. That's it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, final question, Tommy, is what have you enjoyed most about lockdown? I, th- I think it's just given me an opportunity to uh, understand how much I've been working in the last couple of years, you know, and it's definitely not good for you. And everybody's told me that you, you can't do it. And, and there's been two occasions, in the last, only two, but in the last few years when I've really been exhausted. And the last time I was really, really exhausted, I said, that's never going to happen again. And I've been much better, at, you know, whatever's going on, just going to my bed at 10 o'clock and, making sure I'm sleeping properly and eating properly and all that stuff. And this is another level. So mm. I don't, I think it's a break that I would never have taken and everything's very relaxed. I'm still working, but I'm never under any real pressure. This has got to be done. I mean, usually I'm coming in and I've got a list of things and I know I can't go to my bed until I've done these things, you know. Mm. There's none of that. And that's got to be good for your mental health, you know. It's got to be. And also... I think it's going to be a while before things are anything like normal. So, uh, you know, I think uh, it might never return to the really crazy bit, which puts your health in danger. Because, you know, if you're not, if you're working too much, it's going to affect the quality of what you're doing. There's no doubt And this job, you don't really set your own timetable. So, it's just a a nice opportunity to do some of the things that I like doing, but I've never got time to do. Yeah. That, that's it. You know. Absolutely. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for your time and, and your answers. That I think has given 
people a, a real insight into you as not Tommy the lawyer, but Tommy the person. So really interesting answers. Before we go, can I just ask you to nominate someone else to do? Yeah, um, uh, I nominate Brian McConaughey. Oh, I'm sure he'll be delighted to answer the question. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I hope somebody comes and lets you out the salt market soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hey Legal Quiz we are releasing more episodes weekly so please sign up for free to Hey Legal on our website to access our free content legal updates and more plus follow us on Twitter YouTube, Instagram and on all podcasting platforms 